Luke 4, 14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they said? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your homeland what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Quite a passage, huh? Quite a reaction. Uh, so we're, we're three weeks now into this fall series on the life of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Our goal, my prayer, is to see Jesus with fresh eyes as much as we can to remove our preconceptions of what we think in, uh, he is and, and what he's like and to let these passages speak for themselves and let the person of Jesus emerge from the Bible itself. And hopefully we see him in a fresh way. We see him uh, more deeply, more truly, and that we are able to follow him and know what obedience to him would look like in our lives today. That's the, the plan. That's the hope. Today we come to this passage, which is as Luke's first account of now Jesus' public ministry. Um, last week we saw his preparation for ministry in the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan, and now he comes out and he begins his public ministry. And um, this is Luke's first presentation of his public ministry. If you look at uh, verse 14 and 15 for a second, you'll notice that this is not the first event in Jesus' public ministry. He's been going around towns and teaching, and his reputation is growing. 
But I think Luke presents this as the first snapshot in Jesus' ministry because in his mind, and I think rightly so, this event really succinctly sums up Jesus' ministry. Um, If you look at verse 18 and 19, um, where Jesus speaks from Isaiah, those words really sum up his life's purpose really well. They, they capture the essence of who he is and what he's come to do. And then if, if you look at the rest of the story, first the people are praising him and then they want to kill him. That pretty much sums up the various reactions uh, to Jesus throughout his life. So I think this is a really helpful uh, event that really reveals this is who Jesus is. This is what he's all about. This is what he's come to do. And so we're going to Think about this today. I'm, I'm going to really focus in on Jesus' words in verse 18 and 19 today. Uh, the, the setting, of course, is Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. This is where he grew up for the most part. So he was a young boy playing in the streets, going to school, doing his thing. Everyone would have known him here. And now he's returning to where he grew up. Uh, he comes to the synagogue. As I assume this is a synagogue he had been in many times as a, as a boy, as a young man. And uh, first century Jewish synagogues, we don't know everything about what those were like, but we know that um, prayers would have been offered. We know that the scriptures would have been read. There would have been a reading from the law. There would have been a reading from the prophets. And, and certain people who would have been considered, you know, having the authority to read and teach uh, were given a chance to do that. And Jesus as this... This, um, you know, rabbi is given the opportunity to do that. And so he reads from Isaiah. And um, then <laughs> this amazing dynamic takes place between him and people that grew up with him. But again, I, w- I really want to focus in on um, his words today. Uh, fo- focus in on verse 18 and 19. Because I do think these really sum up the essence of his ministry. I remember in school, um, when you're learning to write, you learn to write a thesis statement, right? You know, the, you, you start your, your, your paper with a thesis statement that, that tells the reader what your paper is going to be about. And I think this really is Jesus' thesis statement for his ministry in life. So um, let me read it to you again. And then all I want to do is just notice things together about it. Notice three or four things. So let me read it again. He's, he's reading from Isaiah 61, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the thesis statement of his ministry. Um, first, let's just notice the, how it starts, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. We're going to see throughout Luke that Jesus is God's Holy Spirit inspired servant. And if you've been paying attention closely in Luke, you would notice that the spirit has been popping up all the time. So two two weeks ago, we saw John the Baptist ministry and he said, Hey, I I baptize with water, but one is coming. He's going to baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit, right? In the next scene, Jesus is baptized. And at his baptism, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down in like a physical form of a dove and, is, and rests on him. He's anointed. And then it says he's full of the Spirit. And then it says he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And he's there and he does his thing with Satan. And now in verse 14, he says he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So in Luke's gospel especially, we will see Jesus as the Spirit-filled man. 
He's anointed by the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. He's empowered by God's Holy Spirit to do the things that he does. And Luke also wrote the book of Acts, of course, which is the story of the early church. And there we'll see that the same Spirit that was at work at Jesus is at work empowering, leading, anointing the early followers of Jesus and the followers of Jesus today to do the work that God has for them. So Jesus is the Spirit-filled man. And let me just, what, what he says here, I think, I think his original hearers would hear the context of Isaiah 61 behind this and some Old Testament themes. So let me just kind of get us inside of those for a second. Um, first, this Isaiah passage, this is from Isaiah 61. The context there was, was a time when Israel had gone through lots of um, disobedience and then lots of pain and suffering as a result. And now God was doing a fresh work in them. They had actually, they were going to experience captivity. They were going to be sent into exile and then be brought back into the land. And God is proclaiming this homecoming to the land. Let me just read to you from other parts of um, chapter 61. These are, this comes right after what Jesus says here, more or less. Uh, The Lord has sent me, this is Isaiah the prophet, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, they've experienced ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Okay, the country had been laid waste. It would be laid waste, and now they'd be returned to the land. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So the context of Isaiah is after so much brokenness and judgment and exile, there will be this great homecoming of God's people back to their God. And Jesus comes, and he says, I am inviting God's people back to a homecoming to their God after years of being alienated after years of hard times, come home to your God. All right, the other Old Testament theme that I think is echoed here, uh, if you look at verse 19, the way Jesus ends, which is the way Isaiah ends, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the year of the Lord's favor in the Jewish mind would have this echo of the year of Jubilee that God instituted. In the Old Testament. So many of you don't know about this. But when God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Brought them into the promised land. He gave them these various laws. And one was this amazing law. He said I want you to institute a year of jubilee. For the nation. Every 50 years. Is to be a year of jubilee. And all these beautiful things would happen. Um, Any debts. Imagine this. Any financial debt. That that Israelites had. Would be released. Would be forgiven. Every 50th year. Right? I'd be taking out loans on the 49th year. You know? <laughs> so debts were forgiven. Any Israelite slaves that had been enslaved, they'd you know, sold themselves into slavery because of financial issues, they would be freed on the 50th year. All land would return to original own, owners. So it was this year of, of release and freedom, of joy and jubilee. And Jesus is echoing that. He says, that's what my ministry is about. Now is the time of jubilee. Now is the time of homecoming. Come back to your God. Experience the freedom and release from your debts, from your sins, from your burdens. Return to your God, okay? All of that, I think, is in the background of Jesus' message here about what he's all about. Um, let's notice also, notice, you know, notice the, what I'd call the holistic nature of Jesus' ministry, meaning uh, he has a ministry of word and he has a ministry of deed, okay? 
I was noticing this, this week, all the, all the word words in this passage. He's, the Lord has sent me to proclaim the good news. I'm going to speak good news. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, I've been sent to give a message, to speak words of comfort and hope and truth. But of course, his ministry was not just a ministry of words, but it's also a ministry of deeds. He's going to actually bring recovery of sight for the blind. He's going to set the oppressed free. So it's a very holistic ministry of word, but also deed and compassion and justice and love. Okay? And then here's, here's where I'd like to slow down and, and narrow us in this morning. This is what struck me as I was reading this this week. Um, is to notice who Jesus' ministry is directed to. All right? And in these two verses, he gives us a list of four people. Good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. All right, I want to just put these people up there, okay? It's a, it's a category of people. The poor, the blind, the prisoners, the oppressed. Jesus says, these are the people in the world that I have come for. This is who my ministry is for. And we're going to have to ask ourselves, like, what does he mean by these words? Like, are we talking literally poor? Is that who you came for? Are we talking spiritually poor, literally blind, or like, you know, spiritually blind? What what are we saying here? And I think as we read the gospel of Luke, what will prove to be true is Jesus is including all of that, (laughs) Okay, that whole kit and caboodle, yes, literally poor, yes, spiritually poor. I'm talking about all forms that these descriptions might take in a person's life. Okay, that's who I'm coming from. So let me just give you some examples in Jesus' ministry. Okay, let's take that first one, the poor. Um, we're in chapter 4. The very ne- next chapter, Jesus will encounter a leper. This leper comes to Jesus, cries out, if you're willing, Jesus, if you're willing, you can heal me. Jesus is like, I'm very willing to be healed. Okay. My guess is that leper was literally poor. Given his life circumstance, chances are he had been isolated from people, but chances are he was financially poor. He did not have much. That would be my guess. Literally poor. Uh, but later in that chapter, Jesus is going to go along and see this guy at a, a tax collector's booth named Levi, or we know him as Matthew, most of us who wrote the gospel of Matthew. And he's going to say, Matthew, you come follow me. He's going to free Matthew from this life of sin and bring him into discipleship with him. Now, my guess is Matthew was actually quite, quite rich financially, right? He was a tax collector. He, he got rich taken from people. Kind of the opposite of Robin Hood. He got rich, you know, Robin from the poor to, to uh, how'd that work? To, to give to the rich. He was, liter- he, was, he was literally rich, but he was morally very poor. Relationally, he would have been poor in, within Israel because he would have been isolated, you know. So all that to say, we're going to see in the next chapter various forms that poverty can take. Or blindness. Uh, chapter 18, Jesus is going to be going to Jericho, and a guy who literally can't see is going to approach him. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> Guy's like, glad you asked. I'd love my sight. <laughs> Jesus is great. Be healed. He's literally blind. He literally receives his sight. But in chapter 5, Jesus is going to come along the Sea of Galilee and, and meet Peter and some other fishermen. 
And he's going to invite them into a relationship of discipleship. And what we're going to see throughout Luke's gospel is that these guys can tend to be really blind spiritually. Like they don't see, they don't get who Jesus is. And it takes them the entire gospel to have their eyes opened to the fullness of who Jesus is as Messiah and what it means for him to be Messiah. It won't be till even after his resurrection that their eyes are fully opened. Probably not even till Pentecost that their eyes are fully opened. Okay? So all that to say, poverty takes different forms. Blindness takes different forms. Oppression Prison takes different forms in Luke's gospel. Uh, one other thing uh, that I was noticing that, that captures the holistic nature of Jesus' ministry. Uh, in this passage, there's a word that pops up twice in verse 18, the second half. He says, he has sent me to proclaim freedom. That word freedom for the prisoners. And then again at the end, to set the oppressed free. That word um, means release. Okay, Freedom, being released from something. But what we're going to see in Luke's gospel, that word can have various contexts, various forms of meaning. So, for instance, the word can mean literally release from financial debt. You have a debt, that debt is released, you're no longer in debt. It's a very kind of financial freedom. Uh, but it's also going to have this meaning, release from the binding power of Satan. So Jesus is going to encounter a woman who has been had this... Um, this physical issue that's caused by an evil spirit, and Jesus is going to heal her, and he's going to, and he's going to do it on the Sabbath, and he's going to say, shouldn't I heal this woman who has been bound by Satan for 19 years now with this deformity? I'm going to release her from the power of Satan. And then the other way this word gets used is in a spiritual way, uh, release from sin. He's going to say to a lot of people, your sins are forgiven. It's the same word. You are released from the, the moral debt that you owe, the, the spiritual weight that you feel because of your failings. You've been released from that. All right, so I, I know I'm, I'm going into a little detail here, but all that to say, Jesus says, I'm coming for these four people, and together they represent this category of people. It's a very broad category. My whole point is to say this. The category can be summed up in this way. It's everybody who recognizes in some way their deep and fundamental need for Jesus. Okay? Each person in their own specific context, their own specific issue, but everybody who recognizes, I have a fundamental brokenness, or I have a fundamental need that I, I have a fundamental lack of a resource that I need somebody else to provide. I can't see everything clearly. I need someone to show me the way. I experience a weight and burden that I'm not strong enough to be released from. I need help. And Jesus' thesis statement is to say, I've come for those kinds of people. That's why I'm here, to offer good news to those kinds of people, to offer freedom and release and healing and recovery and, and, and wisdom and direction. I've come to offer jubilee. This is the time of God's jubilee, the release and freedom of these things for all of those who recognize their fundamental need for that in whatever forms those needs may take for them. Okay, that's the thesis statement. I wanted to read one story of jubilee, of release from Luke's gospel that um, I just love. And just by way of example of, of how, actually how this plays out in Luke's gospel. So turn with me uh, just a couple of chapters later. Turn to chapter 7. Uh, 
um, verse 36. And I love this story. I'll, I'm just going to read the first part of it. But this, is, this captures so well, I think, an example of what Jesus is saying. So verse 36, uh, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So you would kind of, tables were lower and you would kind of sit on your side, recline, your feet were away from the table, you're close to the food so you can grab it, okay? Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, that's all we know, um, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped his feet with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Okay, let let me give you an image of this. Okay, obviously a modern rendition of this woman. Her hair is wrapped around Jesus' ankles, and she's there, and to me, it's this, it's this beautiful picture of jubilee, of, of exactly what Jesus has come to do. We don't know much about her. We know for sure that she is poor, okay? And I mean that in the broadest sense. She is morally poor. I'll bet she is relationally poor. She is spiritually poor. She is in a, in a culture that is an honor-shame culture. She lives with lots of shame in towns where everybody knows her, knows what she's on about, she is poor in so many different ways. And clearly, we're not being given the backstory. This is not the first time she's met Jesus, okay? She's, we're not given the backstory, but at some point, she encounters Jesus, maybe in one of his public teachings, and she recognizes in him jubilee. She recognizes a release from all that's burdening her. She recognizes the good news. Here is a man who will accept me. Here is a home of acceptance that I can come home to. And what always moves me is is just this profound, I mean, picture this, okay? It is just this extravagant act of, of profound gratitude and generosity. She takes what she's got that's valuable, this perfume, but she just emotionally loses it. The, the, the overwhelming sense of her own brokenness and the, and the joy that she's found in Jesus. She's crying at his feet. Tears are falling on his dirty feet. We know they're dirty because he says later that the host didn't wash his feet. Okay, They're dirty. She's crying. She's kissing his feet. She's wiping his feet. It is, it is a, this beautiful expression of jubilee, of release, of forgiveness, of grace, of encountering the gospel. And it's an example. And there's so many other examples. But Jesus is saying back in our passage, this is what I've come to do. This is the, these are the kinds of people I've come for. Those who recognize their need and see in me one who can meet their need. See in me a person who says, come home. And experience forgiveness and grace and mercy. And many of us in this room could tell our own stories throughout our lives of coming to these places of need and brokenness and finding in Jesus a savior. Finding in Jesus the good news that he has come to give. So I also want to acknowledge uh, that there's a flip side to that story. 
And the flip side is we're going to find out there's a group of people who actually don't acknowledge their need for Jesus, who don't recognize their fundamental brokenness, their fundamental blindness, their need for Jesus in the way that, that Jesus is saying that, uh, that they need him. And this group of people consistently has problems with Jesus, okay? They're consistently offended by Jesus. And Jesus consistently has problems with these people. And there's a growing conflict that, of course, escalates at the cross. But we see uh, a group of these people in this passage with the woman, right? You have the Pharisees there. And the Pharisees are looking on at this. And they're offended that Jesus is uh, engaging this woman in this way. Because they're thinking, if you knew how sinful she was, you would not be doing that. If you're really a prophet, you would know. And you wouldn't be engaging her that way. And, of course, behind that is they cannot imagine that they need Jesus as much as this woman thinks she needs Jesus. They can't even imagine that that's their situation. In our passage today, back in Nazareth, you have, of course, Jesus' own hometown who represents this group of people. And they, too, they cannot imagine that they need Jesus the way that Jesus is saying they need him. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the details of the story, but it's, I mean, it's a really fascinating dynamic, right? Jesus is coming. It's like, hey, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah. And they're like, come on, Jesus. Like, aren't you Joseph's son? Like, we know you. Who do you think you are? Like, no, you're the guy we've seen, you know, you grew up in diapers around you. You were walking the streets. Like, you, you think you, you know, I mean, that's a tough dynamic. Like, if the Messiah ends up being the boy next door, you know, that's, that's kind of a hard sell, you know? Like, they're just too overly familiar. And so they can't imagine that they would need Jesus in the ways that he's going to say they do. This category that for whatever reason says, um, we're actually not blind, we're not poor, we're not oppressed, at least not in the ways that you say we are. And what Jesus consistently will say in Luke is then, I haven't come for you. Like, I haven't come for people like you. That's not who my ministry is for. And he's happy to say, I mean, he's not happy, but he, he is content to give that response. I was thinking of, you know, when he calls Levi from the tax collector booth and the Pharisees are, are offended by this because now he's hanging out with Levi and all his bad buddies, you know. And Jesus responds this way. He says, well, it's, not a health, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's like, I'm a doctor. That's what I've come as a spiritual doctor. I've come for sick people, not people who think they're healthy. I have not come to call those who think they're righteous, but sinners. I've come to call them to repentance. If you recognize yourself as a sinner, I've come for you. If you don't think you have anything to confess, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to say to you. In, our, in, in, the, in the, the, the story where Jesus you know, is anointed by the sinful woman, um, let me just continue the story. If you, you've got to still, still turn there, you know, the, the Pharisees are saying, you know, what are you doing? And, and, uh, Jesus responds, look at verse 40. Jesus answered, uh, Simon, I have something to tell you. Okay. Should always be nervous when Jesus says, Hey, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> tell me teacher. He said, uh, well, Here's the story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the de- debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I-, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. Jesus says, you've judged correctly. And then in verse 47, he says this. 
Therefore, I tell you, this woman at his feet, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love and gratitude has shown. But whoever's been, uh, been forgiven little loves little. Saying, you know, I've come for people who recognize that they've been forgiven a lot. Those kinds of people respond in gratitude and joy and love for me. If you don't think there's a lot to forgive, there, there's not a lot that I have to offer you. So that's sort of the... the, the, the two sides of the same coin. The good news, the beauty is Jesus says, I've come for all who recognize their need. I've come to pronounce Jubilee, a homecoming, freedom, forgiveness, transformation. The dark side of the story is there are those who do not think that they need that. And for them, Jesus says, I haven't come for you. So that's the story. That's the, at least the, the part of it that I wanted to tell. And I'd love to end today by, by just, I think there's two really obvious implications for us. If, if we're wanting to be Jesus followers that I want to invite us into. And then we'll close. Um, the first is, um, again, to go back to this group of people and say this. If we want to be Jesus followers, and these are the kinds of people that Jesus has come for, then Somehow we have to identify with this group of people. Like we have to find ourselves within this group of people. We have to go, yeah, that's me. Or at least that was me before I encountered Jesus. And again, poverty takes many different forms. Blindness, imprisonment, oppression takes many different forms. But we have to, if we're going to be Jesus followers, go, that's me. I need you. I am broken without you. I am blind without you. I'm in trouble. I need you. Last week we talked about um, the wilderness experiences that God sometimes takes us through. Right? These challenging times. And I think those are in some ways beautiful times where God brings us back to that fundamental point of neediness for him. And we remember, oh yeah, I really do need you. And those can be beautiful moments where we experience God in a deeper way. But I, I thought it's worth acknowledging that, that this is hard for us, um, especially because we live in Orange County in 2018, right? And, and honestly, from a worldly standpoint, that's not us, okay? Like, just from the worldly standpoint, we're actually wealthy. We're pretty smart. Uh, we've got things, we're not really that oppressed. We, you know, if there's a race in this world, we're winning the race, Okay? I mean, just from a worldly standpoint. And so this can be hard for us to identify. And the, and the danger is, is that um, in all that we have, all these great resources, which are wonderful gifts, the danger is that we move into this place of self-sufficiency. I mean, like perceived self-sufficiency. Like I, I kind of have the resources and the connections and the wisdom to make life work. Like I kind of... I kind of don't really desperately need Jesus. I, I kind of can do this. And I think what happens when we find ourselves in a place of self-sufficiency, that our, our spiritual lives become very dulled. Okay? We become lukewarm. We lose a vibrancy. We lose a passion. Because it's like, I kind of can do this. We keep Jesus as an idea, right? But we lose that, that passion. and We become spiritually dulled. And lukewarm, I don't really need him. I still believe in him, but no, he's not this like moment-to-moment reality in my life. 
I was thinking of this church in the first century that I think would very much relate to that dynamic. This is in the book of uh, Revelation, where Jesus addresses these seven churches of the day. And the seventh church he addresses is the church of Laodicea. And let's, I just want to get you inside of the dynamic that was going on in that church, because it is, I think, the temptation for any church in our situation where we've been blessed in so many ways. To the church in Laodicea, this is Jesus speaking. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, but you are lukewarm. So they have become lukewarm in their relationship with Jesus. Now look at the source of this lukewarmness. Here's why. Because you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need anything. Right? A sense of self-sufficiency. But Jesus says, but you don't realize that actually you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. How do you really feel about it, Jesus? He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I'm, I'm rebuking you because I love you. So be earnest and repent. That was that word we saw two weeks ago. Change your mind about this. And then he says this, here I am. I stand at the door. I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So think about this. Their spiritual lives had become lukewarm, Okay. They still believed in Jesus. I'm sure they still showed up in church. They still sang songs. But I guess I would guess there's not a lot of passion to their singing. They still prayed prayers, but there was not a lot of fervency to their prayers. They were still identifying as Christians, but they had lost the joy and vibrancy. The reason was they had grown materially rich, and underneath that was this sense of self-sufficiency. I don't really need Jesus. And so slowly, Jesus had been pushed farther and farther outside of this community. He was no longer at the center. He's now saying, you guys have, in your self-sufficiency, have pushed me out, out to the outside of your community. I'm outside my own church, Jesus is saying. And I want back into the center. So repent. Recognize that your sense of self-sufficiency is an illusion. Actually, without me, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Come back to me for all your deepest needs. Invite me back into the center. And as you do that, we'll experience a rich fellowship. There'll be joy and gratitude. But this is the challenge for us as Orange County churchgoers. And so we have to remind ourselves, no, the truth is I actually am in that category of of poor. (laughs) Without Jesus, this is the reality of myself. And so we need to constantly be repenting of that sense of self-sufficiency, reminding ourselves of of our need of Jesus every day. And let me just end this point by saying, I think the the test for whether we're doing this right, I think at least one of the tests, is gratitude. Gratitude is the litmus test. Okay, Think about this woman at Jesus' feet, filled with tears of joy and gratitude. Gratitude reveals Yes, I recognize my need and that Jesus has met that need. And I'm joyful. I'm thankful. Living with gratitude reveals that we're in the right place. When we're becoming resentful, when we're not living gratitude, chances are we've moved away from where Jesus wants us, right? So all that to say, we need to identify with this group of people. And then my last thought, I'll close with this, is this. That if we want to be Jesus followers, uh, not only do we need to identify as this group of people, But we need to live lives where we are ministering to this group of people, right? Jesus said, my whole life is about meeting these kinds of people. 
Well, if we're going to be Jesus followers, our lives, our church's life, better be about meeting the needs of these kinds of people. And again, the beauty is poverty takes many different forms. Blindness takes many different forms, right? There's so many ways to do this, but this is what the church is to be in the world. We're to step out into the world with the compassionate eyes of Jesus, go to the poor and the blind and the prisoners and oppressed, and with a ministry of word and deed, minister to these people. And if you're to read Luke's second volume, which is called Acts, we would find that the early church did that in beautiful ways, that the Spirit moved them out in a ministry of word and deed to these kinds of people. The church throughout the centuries, at its best, has always been about ministering to these kinds of people in whatever form these issues take shape. But again, I want to acknowledge that this, this is hard for us given where we live, right? Because um, we're surrounded actually by the wealthy and the smart and those with power. And, and our, whole, our whole culture is attracted to people who are healthy and who are successful, right? And who are influential, and so we need to have this posture that, no, we're going to gravitate to these people that find themselves in this situation. And again, that can look so many different, different ways, right? Ministering to the poor can be finding this family that is just making it month to month, that is living in hotels or whatever, and, and starting a relationship with them and, and just a relationship of love and care. But it could also look like ministering to your next door neighbor who literally has a several million dollar house but is going through a really brutal and painful divorce, okay? I mean, it can look so many different ways, but every single one of us has to take a good long look at our lives and say, can I honestly say that, that my life is directed towards these kind of people? And I have to find my own way of doing this in the world. All right? So there it is that we step into this world recognizing that without Jesus, this is us, <laughs> And then stepping out into the world and ministering to the needs of people who fit this category. I was reminded this week of that old saying that Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, right? That's pretty good. And that's what I think it means in this passage to be Jesus false. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. All right, let's close in a word of prayer and then we will eat some bread. Well, Lord, as, as we got today, just a glimpse of the essence of your ministry and your heart for those in need and the good news that you've come to offer release and freedom and sight and recovery, jubilee. Uh, may we find ourselves in that category. May we be reminded of our need for you and not just be reminded of our need, but be filled with gratitude for how you bring release, how you have brought release, how you continue to, the release of our sin, of our brokenness, of our blindness, moving us towards wholeness, moving us towards freedom, towards living out what it means to be truly human in this world, uh, reflecting your image. So may the gospel hit our hearts today, and then may we um, offer that same good news to those in need around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.